is the J-Cut, and this is the K-Cut, a movie podcast for movie fans. James here. I'm a content creator. I produce release music under the alias Boutique Paul. I'm one half of the Prefer Not to Say podcast, and my expertise on the show is no-budget cinema. I'm Rachel. I write for Films Fatal, and I love classic cinema, silence, international film, and I'm especially intrigued by lost film. My name is Andreas. I'm the creator and one of the uh, writers over at Films Fatal. I love art house cinema, international cinema, and everything in between. And it's that time of the month again, folks. It is uh, time for our um, monthly segment called the Cinematic Smorgasbord, where we basically, uh, as you've just heard, we have a lot of differing tastes in cinema, but at the same time, there's a lot of crossover appeal as well. So what we like to do once a month is recommend a film to each other that we have never seen before. And this could be something that we feel like the other co-host would like, or something that we ourselves like that we feel like our co-host should be into. Um, it could be pretty much anything that we feel like. Additionally, in the second portion of our episode, we go into a film that all three of us have never seen before and that we had to watch. So for this month, we've gone into the, um, <laughs> I don't want to call it a sleeper hit because it's technically not true, but the pun is there, it's present. Um, it's a cult film, uh, one that was thought to be lost. A lot of people didn't know, even know that it even existed. Um and that is The Man Who Sleeps by uh, author Georges Perec, who is essentially um, adapting his own novel into a feature film, his uh, cinematic debut as well. And he co-directed it with Bernard Cuisson. So what do we think of this film that uh, most people don't even know exists and those that do know that it exists um you know, they pretty much flat out adore this film. You're going to have to wait and see. But first and foremost, we're going to get into the three individual assignments. So um, I recommended something to James. James recommended something to Rachel. And Rachel recommended something to me. And we can get into our individual assignments right now. Who wants to go first with our findings? I'll go first. Okay, so what did James recommend you and how was it? We continued our theme for last month, and I was assigned Metropolis, which is not the big one you're thinking of from 1927 with the robot lady who dances. This is the 2001 film uh, anime based on the manga by Osamu Tezuka and then directed by Rintaro. And it kind of, I would call it a spiritual remake of the previous Metropolis because it's not really based on the film. But the movie version specifically draws a lot from both that movie and the era, and it tries to fit in all the themes. And so, in large part, I think it's successful. Um, it's got really, really gorgeous Art Deco-style animation, and it has all these different things going on. It's got, like, critiques of nationalism, it's got the issue of robots versus humans, but also the stratification of society, the role of industrialists in power and in building the economic strength of a society. It's just a lot fit in. And I think if there was one flaw, I wish it had been a little longer and had a little bit of time to breathe because it is cramming in a lot for a short runtime. But it's got a compelling plot. It's a great adventure story. And it looks and sounds beautiful. It's got like a bit of a jazz soundtrack and again the animation is really what you're going for here i remember when i first came up with the selection for you because it was going to be much later in the year because you had brought up the fritz lang metropolis multiple times and i was like oh i remember there's a uh, an anime film called metropolis that's similar and uh, uh the fascinating thing about it is be is um osama tezuka 
he was actually inspired to come up with his Metropolis based on a single frame of the Machine Man from Fritz Lang's Metropolis, though he didn't know anything else and he had never seen the movie. So he just kind of took that and came up with a story that had to deal with artificial intelligence. It's pretty clearly based more heavily. Yeah, Yeah, they took elements from the original manga, but then they infused it with direct references and influence from this. And yeah, I'd rewatched it. And I forgot how amazing the animation was. It's gorgeous, yeah. Also, it took five years to make. That doesn't surprise me, because it clearly went onto the screen. <laughs> but yeah, because I remember I, I'd seen it probably over 20 years ago or something like that. I just I remember watching it. I just hadn't remembered most of it. But yeah, um, it's also uh, interesting because um, the screenwriter for it is actually the creator of uh, the uh, of Akira. Yeah. So that was, I thought, even more interesting. All right. So you saw Metropolis, you said, roughly 20 years ago, which is pretty close to when it first came out. And I wonder now, because A, you've grown up, and B, um, we've had a lot of economic trouble, and we've had the presidency of Donald Trump, which you can't help but compare to the rich industrialist in the movie. And I'm just wondering, did it hit differently for you watching it now when with everything we've gone through in the past few years. Yeah, I think it's definitely more relatable now. I think it was like, I just sort of watched it just because I was really into anime and I just thought it looked cool. Mm-hmm. I, I mean, I was at an age where it's like, I didn't really focus on nuance, but now watching it, I'm just like, wow, this totally parallels modern society in a way that, you know, most people probably wouldn't have predicted. I mean, it's like the original Metropolis yeah. kind of still parallels today. So. That's why I called it a thematic remake, because it really does touch on the same stuff. It just doesn't really have a very similar plot, except for a couple of key points. Anyway, it was a very good choice, and I think it was interesting to put it next to Grandpa Metropolis. Well, that's good. I was hoping. What did you get assigned? So I'm going to preface this by saying I'm putting a temporary ban on really long movies. <laughs> Sorry. So I was assigned Seven Samurai, the classic samurai flick by Akira Kurosawa. Okay, um... You know, you've been talking about this film for a very long time, and I do apologize for the uh, nearly four-hour length of the of the film. But at the same time, I feel like, you know, it's one of the most influential films of all time, you know, when it comes to how action films are made or just direction in general. So I'm hoping that the, you know, the duration wasn't much of a sore point. He was just warming up for Killers of the Flower Moon. That too, yeah, basically. It was actually, it was just short of three and a half hours. And there's also like a five, six minute intermission. So I actually split it up between two days because there was an intermission. I just want to put this out there. I did enjoy the film. The runtime wasn't a problem. I just don't think movies have to be that long. Would I trim it at all? No, but my point is like, they don't have to be if you don't want them to be. But yeah, it's, it's like I always say with a lot of movies from this kind of era, it's good to watch because of the kind of groundwork it laid for the future. Because obviously Seven Samurai has you know, been referenced all throughout cinema history from that point on, or just even Kurosawa's influence in general just permeates through consistently even to this day. But I was surprised at how fun it kind of was in the beginning before things kind of really kicked into gear to where it got serious. Because... You know, for those who don't know, it's it's a very simple story. It has to do with a village of farmers who keep getting raided by bandits. And th- after the last raid, they're like, all right, they don't really have much. We're coming back. 
you know, when the new crops in. And so they're like, we need samurai to help defend us. And yeah, they just kind of sort of put together this ragtag group of samurai who just kind of not have a lot going on. You know, they're, you know, they're all Ronin who are very well past their war days. And then, yeah, they come together and form this brotherhood and essentially just prepare for battle. And there's a lot of interesting personalities in this group that you wouldn't think it's, it's like the least likely group of people to succeed. But, you know, once they really get into the swing of things, they prove different. Yeah. And at the same time, um, this film was inspired, um, you know, Akira Kurosawa was always inspired by like Western filmmaking. Um, Case in point, uh, Yojimbo, his 1960, 1961 film. I don't remember. Um, that was an answer to the American Western. Now, what's interesting is that would wind up becoming um, A Fistful of Dollars, which is the uh, Sergio Leone, uh, Clint Eastwood Western, Spaghetti Western specifically, that would uh, create its own offshoot of sequels, including The Good, the Bad, and the Ugly. Now, with Seven Samurai, there's still that sort of mentality there because it would ultimately become the Magnificent Seven, the American Western with Yul Brenner, um, which I don't think is nearly as good in comparison. Uh, what we have in Kurosawa's film is, you know, it, it starts off being like this uh, morality tale, like, you know, are we going to help this village? Uh, yes, we are. We are um, seven different samurai of different walks of life. Um, let's band together. But what I adore the most is how it ends, and it's not just this clear-cut, like, um, heroes ending, like, oh, you know, the day's been saved or anything like that. You know, as much as Kurosawa was inspired by Western filmmaking, he wasn't going to bend and, uh, you know, bend in favor of Hollywood specifically, uh, even though he was very influential to Hollywood. You know, if you look at, like... um, the Hidden Fortress in Star Wars, for instance, and so many of his other films. Um, the ending is a lot more ambiguous. Like, things happen, but at what cost? And I feel like that's why, uh, of the many reasons why I love Seven Samurai, that one is for sure one of the highlights. Like, this um, this unclear ending where it's very bittersweet. Oh, yeah. Well, there's also the... Because um, I remember it was being discussed in... The story of film, the Mark Cousins documentary, and he showed. Uh, he said one of the points that really it's not really something that's super you know blown up as being the point of it, but there's this transition because you know there's firearms in this era, and it's like kind of shows it's like the days of the samurai are kind of ending. So it also shows this group who's just used to a certain way of doing things, and they have to adapt to something that they just really aren't privy to. So they have to get creative in how they defend themselves. Yeah, that's a very good point. And again, to go back to what I was saying before, that was something that Westerns was also exploring. Um, if you look at something like to go back to Sergio Leone, uh, once upon a time in the West, you know, a decade later, you know, the idea of the end of an era. I feel like in general, filmmakers were, you know, at this point, major motion pictures. If we're looking back to like you know, Metropolis and these uh, silent films, which were of a substantial length, you know, by that point, they were quite a few decades old. And I was, I'm wondering if a lot of um, the emerging filmmakers like Kurosawa at the time were 
enamored with cinema, but they were also wondering what's next. What can we do differently? And I feel like his answer to this, because, you know, if you look at some of his other films like Rashomon, which is like his most narratively groundbreaking film, I can't help but think that uh, Seven Samurai is like what he was trying to do to change things on a genre level. Yeah. So overall, you liked it? Yeah, over overall, I enjoyed it. It's definitely, definitely one I recommend, you know, I mean, I've been meaning to get, you know, watch more Kurosawa, just sitting down to actually do it. Well, I'm very happy that it worked out. Um, I promise from here on out, because I feel like I've given you a few, a few heavyweights, uh, Gene Dillman. <laughs> I, I, I know what I'm going to assign James next. I wish I was assigning it now. Don't worry, it's not a long one. I purposely, I'm trying to go in the opposite direction. So, so what did you get? Uh, it's the, just as dark and dramatic and horrifying as the first two. It is, and it's also 12 hours long, and it's not. It's um, I'm surprised I haven't seen this yet because there's so much buzz around this film, and I'm so happy that I finally got around to it. That's uh, Mike Nichols' The Birdcage, and the older I get, and the more I venture forth and watch um, maybe not the things that Mike Nichols is like, you know, iconic for, like let's say the graduate or um, Virginia Wolf, the more I'm like in love with him as a filmmaker. I feel like, uh, you know, he's obviously a great filmmaker, but you know, when I get to something like the birdcage, which I just like have overlooked for so long, yeah, I, I mean, like, I, I can see the different angles that he's a good filmmaker. And, yeah, The Birdcage, uh, before I really get into it, might be one of my favorite picks that I've been assigned. Really? Oh, I was hoping you might kind of like it a bit. <laughs> <laughs> I, I actually, like, adored it. Um, so The Birdcage is an interesting comedy film, which has quite a stacked cast. So at the forefront is Robin Williams and Nathan Lane, who play um, a gay couple. Uh, Robin Williams is the owner of a, of a nightclub, uh, which uh, features drag performances. And um, Nathan Lane is one of those drag performers. So, also, I'm uh, going to stop you for a second. Mm-hmm. You just watched a movie about drag performances in Florida, and I'm just going to leave it there. That's um, uh, a very... Kind of timely uh, in a bad way. <laughs> yeah, that... That actually, that's a that's an excellent point, and it's actually a pretty rough point. Yeah, it takes place in South Beach. Um, to this point, I, I think you stopped me at precisely the right moment. Their son is getting married, and the girl's family is impeccably conservative, like staunch moral majority. I think he's a senator or something. Yeah, he's. Uh, He's the uh, co-founder of a conservative group called the Coalition for Moral Order. So um, he's not just conservative. He's almost like ritually so, like like stupidly so. And as a result, their son Val, uh, I believe his, his name is, um, makes some odd requests. Like, hey, can we change how our home looks? Can my dad, you know, pretend not to be gay for a day? And there are so many brilliant yet heartbreaking allusions to the closeted experience from the obvious, like uh, Nathan Lane, his, his character, um, you know, he's, he's in drag all the time, but at the same time, I can't help but feel like perhaps, you know, she might be a transgender woman who uh, hasn't like fully come out yet. Um, 
But if you look at the surface level, there's still Nathan Lane as a drag performer who uh, plays straight. There's that side of it. But then there's also just the subtle stuff like disguising somebody's home so they don't put off this, you know, they, they don't mm-hmm. project this lifestyle. There's, uh, and they have to hide that the Williams character is Jewish. That's another part that's pretty important as well. So mm-hmm. I almost feel like um, what the original uh, the original story or um, Mike Nichols might have been trying to get across here, or Elaine May, who wrote the screenplay, and it's one of her finest screenplays, I would say. Um, you know, having the Jewish portrayal, you know, what that says to me is, okay, if you're not gay or um, identify as trans or, you know, sexually fluid in any sort of way, Perhaps you could understand what it feels like on this level where you have to hide, you know, your heritage or your religion. If that's something that you identify with, then the rest should kind of make sense. And so many things from the brilliant art direction to um, the cinematography shot by none other than Emmanuel Lebeski. I can always, I, I, as soon as I watch something and I'm like, this, this something about this looks fantastic. It's almost always Lebeski. He, he truly is the greatest. Um, this was a, an astonishing film. It, it really is a great film, like a great comedy. And not very well seen. Which is sad. I feel like its reputation is growing, but at the same time, it's not seen enough. Yeah, I would agree. And, you know, back in the day, it was quite well received. It was groundbreaking. I, I think it still is groundbreaking, sadly. And um, we and it won one of the very early SAG awards for Best Ensemble, which is perfect because it's an amazing ensemble. In fact, like, what strikes me as you speak is how much top-notch talent was involved in every aspect of this. Like Hank Azaria, Christine Baranski, Diane Weist, all these people. I feel like that's important to bring up because... The SAG Awards Best Ensemble Award um, used to mean more than just here's a precursor to Best Picture or here's a film. Yeah, exactly. It's it's not like uh, here's um, a popular film with a good cast. No, in this film, like Gene Hackman's on fire, like uh, Diane Weiss is on fire. It might be my favorite Nathan Lane performance I've seen. It's one of Robin Williams' underrated ones, I'd say, because he's not given that much to do compared to most of his films. I agree with that as well. I do know that behind the scenes that he was originally supposed to be the Nathan Lane character and he purposefully said, hey, look, listen, um, Mike Nichols, buddy old pal, uh, I just did Mrs. Doubtfire. I don't want to do this again because then like that might be insulting and kind of just like, you know, a misuse of me. Can I be this other character? And for Robin Williams, you know, it's such a dialed back performance. And you can even spot a very young Callista Flockhart as the fiance of the son. Yeah, uh, this is well before um, Ali McBeal. So, uh, yeah, I, I'm not used to seeing her quite this young. But even like she like kind of knows her place, where it's like I'm amongst all these zany characters. I'm just gonna stand back and let them do their work. Yeah, it's it's a they work so well together. They really define the meaning of an ensemble. Yeah, so in this case, like, the SAG Award for, like, Best Ensemble Cast, like, this isn't, like, a Best Picture thing. This is actually, like, a hell of a cast. Yeah. Like, it's a really good cast. It's also a remake 
of a French film from the 70s, La Casual Fall, which has also become a Broadway musical separately. And I've heard they're adapting that. Oh, they've tried a few times. And so this is just a whole franchise at this point. It's the Birdcage Extended Universe. So, Well, uh, I'm all for it, uh, just as long as it doesn't get beaten into the ground. But uh, as you said, it's underseen. So uh, I think we're far from that. Well, good. I'm glad you liked it. Oh, absolutely. I adored it. Speaking of underseen, we are getting into the second portion of our episode. So... The Man Who Sleeps. I have never heard of this film until the last, like, let's say, to be generous, maybe 10 years. That's what I love about film history, and that's why I chose it. First off, it just sounded interesting. Secondly, so many films that wind up becoming, like, classics or beloved, a lot of people didn't even know they existed. But when you start, like, digging deeper and deeper into the annals of film history... And doing a lot of research, you discover a lot of things that are fantastic, but just never got their dues. So, uh, Georges Perec uh, wrote this novel called A Man Asleep, and uh, it's the direct English translation. And he himself personally directed the uh, film adaptation. So, he had never directed a feature film before, and this was his first. And he co-directed it with Bernard Quezon. So, this is a sleek, nearly 80-minute film without dialogue, without names, without really a storyline. It's much of anything. No, it's just a voiceover that gets more and more manic, a film which gets more and more self-destructive, an existential nightmare on a nearly Kafka-esque level. You can see how this would appeal to film weirdos like us, like the kind of people <laughs> who pay attention to sight and sound, that kind of thing. I, I, I'm hoping... How I feel about it is how everybody else is feeling about it. How did we feel? It was a movie. It was very off-kilter the entire time, and I think it was supposed to be. You were kind of left off balance at the end. I do think that there is a very high chance that this influenced Fight Club in some way. Especially the beginning. Maybe. I mean, I feel like this could have influenced so many different things. That's true. There's a lot of movies about not being able to sleep. Some, huh, an artist not being able to sleep. Go figure. Yeah, and that man did not sleep once in this flick. Yeah, that title was a lie. Well, yes and no. I I took it more figuratively, like he's sleeping through society, you know, either accepting everything as it is when really it shouldn't be this way, or becoming so detached from everything that he no longer is alive, despite the fact that he lives. There's also a very handy viewing lens for, like, what, 1970s France. Yeah, um, France, you know, outside of like maybe the, the new wave stuff um, on a literary and cinematic level was going through a lot of like philosophical stuff, uh, you know, in the, in the middle of the century. And I mean, this goes without saying, I mean, I don't know about either of you and I hope it wasn't a drag, but like, I personally adored this. Having said that, it and not in a negative way. It felt like three hours, despite the fact that it was 80 minutes, but I feel like that was very effective. I mean, this thing just felt like it felt like something that Chris Marker would have made um, had he wanted to venture forth into such dismal, cynical territory. Yeah, I think if it had been even a frame longer, it would have not been as good. Like, it, it should not have gone longer than it did. I mean, I'm obsessed with postmodern literature, albums, films... Um, so something like this, where you feel so detached from the film and it's basically yelling at you, like, this is what, not the, the protagonist, this, 
um, unnamed boy that's living through life with a broken mirror and, um, you know, all of these mundane rituals. No, no, you, the person in the theater, are sitting at home. You know, like, you, this is what you are doing and why you are, like, disenfranchised with, you know, existence. And I don't know. I feel like, especially just to at least see once, I thought it was just, like, a revelatory experience. Um, but I don't know if I'd recommend this to, like, everybody. But if you're, like, a hardcore cinephile or love art house or just provocative stuff, I feel like this is this is a must almost. I agree. It's definitely a strong entry in the film canon. Um, and I think that it's very easy to watch this and say, am I missing something? And I think that might be kind of the point. At the same time, because I feel like I've sung its praises a million times. This is a pretty challenging film. I have nothing to say on this front, but do either of you have any like reservations or um, things that you didn't really care for with this? I'm just going to have to watch it again, to be honest. I think you have to buy into it, and that's the step you have to take. So if you don't buy into it, then you're stuck. I think you also have to be prepared for it. That's true. Because mm-hmm. I feel like it's intentionally meant to like push you back and make you watch over a distance, but to both your points, if you're not in the mood, if you're not prepared, um, if you're not buying into it, it could be a drag. But, I mean, for me personally, that didn't happen. But I could see why... If somebody from the get-go is like, okay, this guy's not going to speak. I'm just going to be, this is what this whole movie is. This person is just going to talk to me this whole time. I can imagine this being kind of a chore, which is unfortunate because I feel like it's so rewarding, you know, if you're allowing it to be so. Yeah. Yeah. But it's definitely a film to commit to. Yeah. Well, and we did. All three of us watched it and, um. Well done, team. Well done. I feel like it's time to commit to some additional films, and we have nothing else to say about The Man Who Sleeps. It made me want to take a nap. Does that count? Uh, is that good or is that bad? (laughs) I mean, it's soporific in itself. (laughs) Uh, Fair enough. Um, I feel like it's time to commit to some additional films. Before you do that, uh, we want to invite you listeners at home to... Talk about these films if you've seen them before, uh, any of the four. Um, where can our listeners find us? We are on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram under the K-Cut, and we are on all your favorite streaming platforms. All your favorite, especially your absolute favorite. Including that one you can only listen to in Norway on Tuesdays. Precisely, yes, uh, whatever that, that one is. So, uh, uh, yeah, brilliant. So what we like to do at the end of the episode, and I feel like this is actually the most inter- like exciting part for us, it's like Christmas all over again. I say that every time. I'm so sorry. Um we, this is where we discover what we're going to be recommended. So uh, today I'm going to be recommending something to Rachel, Rachel something to James, and James something to me. And additionally, our collective pick is also going to be chosen by James. So uh, who wants to find out what they're going to watch for the next month? What am I watching? Oh, you're going to be mad as hell, James. Why? You're watching Network. Network? It is one of the biggest films of the 70s. You haven't seen it, right? Doesn't sound familiar. Wait, you don't even know it. Oh my god, you're in for a treat. Oh my god, you're gonna love this. It's it's just it's got so much to say, kind of in a way Metropolis did, and it's got so many wild tangents and like you gotta watch it. Like there's no getting out of this one. Yeah, Network is one of the absolute greatest new Hollywood films of all time. And additionally, I'm gonna I'm gonna go out on a limb here. 
one of the top five greatest screenplays of all time by Patty Chayefsky. It is brilliantly written. And it won three acting Oscars, so that should tell you something. Um, but yeah, and also I think it would personally appeal to you because I've listened to your podcast and it touches on a lot of the same themes. Oh, this is going to be fun. Yeah, this film was prophetic to the point where when it came out, people thought it was a joke. Like, this isn't a satire, this is pure comedy. And unfortunately, nobody's laughing at it now because it unfortunately predicted a lot of things about media culture, um, fake news, television and reality shows, uh, just so many things. But it is a masterpiece that only gets better with age. Uh, Rachel's point about you getting mad as hell, you'll find out what she means when you watch it. Yeah, so uh, just you're going to love it. I guess it's my turn then. Yeah. Uh, So... I often try to reserve this, these recommendations, you know, for stuff that are like, you know, like big classical films or uh, things that, I don't know, kind of made like a big splash. But instead, you know, I'm kind of getting jealous that like everybody kind of goes for like personal picks, like things that they just like personally love and they don't really have like this prestige behind them or anything like that. Um, I don't think you've seen this, and it's very kind of outside your wheelhouse, but that's partially why I'm interested in asking you to watch this. I think James might have seen this. I'm not sure. Um, Anyway, I think it's one of the best sci-fi films of the 21st century, and I love it so much that, in case you don't know, I actually got a tattoo of it, uh, so there's no going back. Um I'm recommending Rachel uh, Alex Garland's Annihilation, Ooh. All right. which I think is a brilliant science uh, science fiction f- film. The only problem with recommending it is I feel like it deserves to be seen twice. I'm not recommending that you see it twice, but in case you feel that way, I'm just warning you now. I think it's so good, magnificent. I adore this film, and I think it's going to get its just desserts. You know, in in the future, it's going to be recognized the way that it should be. I have not gotten around to it yet, and I know how much you love it, so I'm very intrigued. Brilliant. So there's one more left to go. Uh oh. Well, alrighty. What am I watching? <laughs> So the fact that you got the birdcage and I hadn't watched it, but hearing you describe it makes me even more excited to give you this. So in honor of it being Pride Month next month and the fact that Florida decided to go on a crusade against people who do drag, I'm also recommending you a film that deals with drag. I'm assigning you to Wong Fu, Thanks for Everything, Julie Newmar, which is a 1995 (laughs) road comedy that stars Wesley Snipes, Patrick Swayze, and John Leguizamo as drag queens. That's hilarious, because when I got around to finally watching Birdcage, all these recommendations for this damn movie came out. So it's like, that's why I laugh, because it's like, well, naturally, if it's not the algorithm, it's James. So uh, I think it was destiny for me to watch this, and I guess I'm going to have to now. So uh, lay it on me. Let's do it. Alrighty. And it's my turn for the collective pick. Alrighty. What are we What are we watching? Uh, we're getting assigned another drag movie. Really? Yeah, it's actually a another road comedy similar to Tuong Fu, but it came out a year earlier. But it's an Australian film, and it's called The Adventures of Priscilla, Queen of the Desert. And the drag queens in this movie are played by Hugo Weaving and Guy Pierce. You know, I've been meaning to get around to both Wong Fu and Priscilla, Queen of the Desert, forever. So this is perfect. Also, there's a transgender character that's played by Terrence Stamp. Oh, I love Terrence Stamp. 
You are very, very lucky, James. I've seen quite a few scenes of this film on TV. I've never seen it in full. So oh, good. I think it still counts. I feel like I've seen like most of it, but I've never seen it like in full. So let's let's do it. I've been waiting for like a year to assign both of these at the same time. I'm kind of surprised Andreas has seen neither of them, to be honest. Well, I like uh, Tu Wong Fu. I've seen like none of at all, not even a, a clip. I've just seen like the poster and stuff. But um, uh, Priscilla, Queen of the Desert. I mean, that's one that if you go to film school gets discussed a lot. I feel like that's one that people just mutually agree. It's just a lot of fun. So I've seen quite a few clips of it. And I went through a huge Guy Pierce phase when I was like a, a late teenager. I thought he was like the greatest actor. He's still really good, but like, I don't know if I go that far, but I've heard that it's like a great performance of his. And it's just, I, I also like it because like you never expect all of these particular gentlemen in both movies to be cast as drag queens, considering all the other roles they do. Alrighty. Well, that's uh, celebrating Pride Month in style. So for for the month of June, we're going to be watching Tu Wong Fu. Thanks for everything, Julie Newmar. Uh, we're going to be watching Annihilation. We're going to be watching Network. And we're going to be watching The Adventures of Priscilla, Queen of the Desert. I was, You know, typically I feel like our uh, films don't really have much in common, but at least two of these do. So th- there you go. But I think it's relevant. Yeah, it's quite the lineup. Uh, we've got a few cult classics there. We've got like a, like a major classic in, in the history of cinema. So I feel like our, we've got our work cut out for us, and I am stupidly excited. Uh, thank you for listening to another episode of The K-Cut. Uh, we are now going into the L-Cut.